This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. So I have to thank Dr. Teller for giving half of my talk. Um, as you can see, I was asked to speak about acne and hydradenitis. But what I can do is sort of change the focus of this talk a little bit more to management. So I am a pragmatist. I want things that I can do in the clinic for the next patient that's going to walk into the room. And so what we're going to do is walk through some patient scenarios. And then there's a couple of guidelines that I want to share with you, one on acne and then another for hydradenitis that have really helped me to um, you know, have a schema in my mind when I have a patient in front of me. So what we're going to do is talk about, again, just a very quick review of some of the more common findings seen in acne and hydradenitis, or HS, and then talk about, again, very practical tips about the management of those two conditions. So there's a couple of cases just right up front. Um, this is a 17-year-old woman. She presents with comedonal acne in the T-zone, so across her forehead, nose, and cheeks. Which of the following treatments would you give her first off, so most appropriate? Sorry, I'm a little slow on the trigger with this slide, so I'll be a little faster next time. All right, great. So 15-year-old man has moderate acne on his face and back. There's no picture for this one. You plan to start doxycycline. His parents are worried about his microbiome. What dose of doxycycline would you use? True story. All right. 22-year-old woman comes in with moderate acne. She asks about whether she should change her dairy intake. What change is most supported or would you do? Stop all dairy, change to skim or no fat, suggest higher fats, or make no changes. <clears throat> A 25-year-old man has these findings on, this is his, the back of his leg. What is the most likely diagnosis? Good, and 25-year-old woman has these findings. What is the most likely diagnosis? There's just one more after this. Good, 35-year-old man has these findings. What's your next, next step in therapy? So if any of you have watched Seinfeld, they you know, kind of make fun of dermatology as pimple popper, pimple popper MD. So we are going to talk about acne, but then we're talking about hydradenitis, which is big. So that's why the all caps for pimple popper. I'm a big fan of telling people what I'm going to tell you up front. So the take home points for acne, I'm going to give you right now. Basically topical retinoids. They are the cornerstone of management. Now, adapalene is available over-the-counter as different. It's much more accessible, especially for our patients who don't have great insurance coverage. So I'm making more and more use of it. 
Second thing, topical management, benzoyl peroxide is a part of pretty much every step of acne uh, management because of its importance in reducing antimicrobial uh, resistance to antibiotics. And more about antibiotics, we need to try and be a little more thoughtful um, about the dose of our antibiotics and the duration of our antibiotic therapy um, because of this idea of our bodies really being a host and normally functioning with uh, our microbiome. Uh, and there are ways that we can try and keep that balance of treating people's conditions but not sort of causing dysregulation in those flora that live with us. So moving on to acne. This was that young woman. This is not a polling question. It's just to reinforce that you guys saw that the right answer was for comedonal acne that's pretty mild, first step number one is going to be a topical retinoid. And topical adapalene was the only one that was available here. There was this guideline that was published in 2016, and it's pretty busy, but I just want to try and orient you to a couple of things. One is we think about treatment based on the severity of disease, so comedonal is going to be in this mild category. And then we think about first-line therapies and essentially what's next if you still need to improve therapy. So we're going to focus on this area right here. And for this question, topical retinoid was the correct answer. Why were the others not right? Well, I didn't give you benzoyl peroxide as a correct answer because it would be really hard to pick between those two things. So topical combination therapy. I gave you topical clindamycin as a single agent therapy. You correctly didn't pick it because we don't want to use a topical antibiotic as a single agent therapy. There's lots of research to show that using only a topical antibiotic without benzoyl peroxide really allows for that antimicrobial resistance to develop. Benzoyl peroxide is going to block a lot of that. So that's why single agent clindamycin would not have been a good answer. The other things that I gave you, minocycline, birth control, and isotretinoin, they're not recommended for more mild acne, especially that comedonal type. So topical retinoid is really going to be one of the best agents for those patients. And adapalene. So I found out that this uh, came out um, not too long ago. I think it's going to be almost a year. And I went online and I tried to find it. Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't find it. I'm like, Google's broken. What's going on? So the challenge is you have to actually use the search term different. If you search adapalene, you come up with all the news items about the approval, but you can't actually find the drug. So I suggest to my patients, go to the store. I know that Walmart and Target have it, and the prices that are here are from those two websites. But if your patient doesn't have one of those near them, then I would suggest that they Google the brand name different. And what's important is that you want to ask them not to look for the balancing moisturizer. So there's two boxes on the shelf. One's light blue, that's the moisturizer. The actual active ingredient, adapalene, is in the darker blue. So you want to suggest that they find the product that's in the darker blue box and is priced above $10 because the moisturizer is a little bit less than that. All right, so topical retinoids, moving on to antibiotics. This was the question about a young man who Yes, actually, his mom came with him to an appointment. Um, she was very well read on uh, acne, the causes, and the management. And she asked me, you know, you're suggesting an antibiotic 
that's going to hurt the normal bacteria that live in him, his microbiome. What are you going to do about that? And I was kind of floored for a second. Um, but luckily, I'd been preparing this talk for um, another audience. So I suggested the 20 milligrams twice a day. I'm going to share with you that there are actually several studies showing that low-dose doxycycline, like we think of for treating rosacea typically, can be as effective as a 100 milligram dose of doxycycline for treating mild to moderate acne. So thinking about antibiotics and this issue of resistance, it didn't exist in 1976. But 25 years later, more than a third of patients who were tested to see if their bacteria had become resistant, more than a third did have resistant P. acne's bacteria. And what's important is that antibiotic is not just treating the P. acne's that we are trying to address. It's treating every bacteria in that person's system. The other issue is, especially with the antibiotics we use, macrolides have sort of fallen out of favor. So macrolides like erythromycin and clarithromycin, because it seems like they develop, the bacteria develop resistance to these antibiotics much faster than to things like tetracyclines. So usually these macrolide antibiotics are second line after tetracyclines, and always with the benzoyl peroxide. So with benzoyl peroxide, there are studies showing that even the topical use of a benzoyl peroxide wash while taking an oral tetracycline can help reduce bacterial resistance. And I think that this is important not only for our patients where we're using antibiotics for acne, but like Dr. Teller was talking about, with CHS, we immediately think of giving people antibiotics. This is a place where I use a lot of benzoyl peroxide as well. This is that slide showing three studies so you'll see a column of numbers on the left, 80%, 52%, 42%, and then this column of numbers on the right. This is the percent improvement or lesion reductions for people who took low-dose doxycycline. This was either 20 milligrams twice a day or 40 once a day, compared to patients who took the very typical dose that I prescribed for years, 100 milligrams. The difference here, minimal. And that's important. So we're not looking necessarily for 20 milligrams or low dose to perform better. We're looking for it to do at least as good a job. Now, that first study had some pretty amazing results. But looking at the second and third studies, we're still seeing a very similar performance between low dose and high dose. With low dose versus placebo, we're still seeing that the low dose, of course, performs better than a placebo pill. But what's also really important are side effects. So this is a comparison of the number of people, the percentage of people who had side effects with low dose compared to high dose. It's six or seven times lower. So thinking about that first row of numbers where you're getting similar effect, but now fewer people giving you a call to say, I got a sunburn or my stomach hurts. This is fewer calls and fewer you know, annoyance for both me and my patient. So now I routinely use lower doses of doxycycline. And again, that mom who's concerned about the microbiome doesn't have to be quite as worried. But we also need to think about the duration of how long we're treating people with antibiotics. So I never used to think about this. I used to think about duration when I was treating people with isotretinoin or methotrexate for some other condition, but not with antibiotics. But that changed with a couple of different publications. One was this guideline that came out suggesting that antibiotics should really be used for about three to four months. In that period of time, we should be able to see if 
this patient's acne is going to get better. If it doesn't, I start talking to them about isotretinoin. If it does, I stop the antibiotic. And I set up this expectation early. So I tell them when we start the antibiotic, you're going to be on it for three months. This is what's going to happen if you get better. This is what's going to happen if you don't. Um, and so I think that that kind of helps them not have to feel like they have to taper off of it or they get really worried if they um, have done well and they feel like they need to stay on it. That's not really an option. And another publication showed that for us, when patients eventually get to needing isotretinoin, most of those people were on antibiotics for almost a year. So we just keep hoping that the antibiotic's going to kick in in that sixth month or eighth month. It's probably not. So that's why this three or four months recommendation came out. If they're going to get better, it's probably going to be in that period of time. And if they don't, I talk about isotretinoin. If they do get better, but then their acne flares very quickly after stopping the antibiotic, that's a sign I can't leave them on antibiotics for a year or two while their acne burns out. That's another person where I'm going to consider isotretinoin. So thinking about not only duration and dose of antibiotic, but also trying to decrease that risk of resistance by having benzoyl peroxide as part of a regimen whenever I'm using oral or topical antibiotics. So we get our patients better. We use isotretinoin like in that prior case, the, the picture in the background. And then they have this scarring. And I was always taught, you have to wait you know, six or 12 months for these patients before they can have treatment for their scarring. That feels really crappy when I say it to people, and they don't want to hear it. Um, where did that recommendation come from? Well, it came from the 1980s. So back in the 1980s, and the take-home point is going to be here, we don't have to delay that we can do treatment for acne scarring there were four case reports or case series that came out with people who got hypertrophic or keloid scarring after um, dermabrasion when they were either on or after isotretinoin. So 11 patients. What's more important to realize is in that time, since then, there have been eight times as many people in better designed trials treated with more current therapies that we use, so chemical peels and lasers, eight times as many people treated who did not, a single one, get a hypertrophic scar or laser. So this has changed my practice, so that way I'm working with my, I don't personally do a lot of laser or chemical peel, but we refer to our derm surgeons who are in our group. We now refer earlier to have those conversations where they can start to have these treatments within a few months of finishing isotretinoin. We're still not to the point of doing these treatments while they're on isotretinoin, but we're not making them wait half a year or a year to take care of their scarring. So a lot of our acne patients also come in asking about diet. I think this happens a lot with acne and HS patients. Do you guys have a similar experience? Yeah, it's always like, what can I stop eating so I don't break out? Well, the short answer is there's nothing you can stop eating that will make you stop breaking out. Um, but a lot of people seem to focus on dairy. Um, and so there has been a lot of editorials, some studies that were designed well, some not designed well to address this issue. And one of the more recent studies that was designed pretty well just came out this past year. And one of the suggestions was, now for this question, it doesn't have a best 
correct answer, but it does have a wrong answer, and that's to stop dairy. So especially for our growing adolescents, we don't want them to give up dairy, but the option of changing to a higher fat diet or at least, uh, sorry, higher fat dairy is an option, and I'll show you some of that uh, data in just a second. All right. So I'm telling my patients now, when it comes to your diet and your acne, you don't have to ditch dairy. So there was a study just done of kids with moderate acne. They surveyed about 200 of them. And then they got 200 other kids of the same age and gender, and they asked them about their diets, and they compared them. And what did they find? It was stunning that kids with acne consumed half of a serving more of dairy than kids without acne, earth-shattering. What's half of a serving of dairy? It's half a glass of milk, half of a small cup of yogurt, and three cheese cubes. Clinically, this is not important. Statistically, in that paper, it was a difference. But there is no sort of reason that we think reducing dairy intake by half of a serving is really going to take away moderate acne. But what they did find when they dug further into this paper is that difference in dairy intake was really most significant when they looked at skim milk rather than higher fat milk like 2% and 4% dairy. And this idea of reducing milk fat in products really is based on theory. It was based on back in the 90s when the, people started to notice that kids were getting heavier, people were gaining weight. They said, well, let's cut some calories. One of the first places we can do it is just in milk fats. You know, have everybody drink low-fat milk. There was no science to it. And there's been more studies done recently showing that people who ingest full fat, so 2% or 4% dairy products, they have no higher risk of being heavier. In fact, they usually have a lower weight. They have no increased risk of having diabetes. They have a lower risk. And they have no change in their risk of cardiovascular disease. And also importantly, this idea of changing diet to have fewer calories, that's been investigated in acne. They had kids with moderate acne change their diet so they had fewer carbohydrates. So again, not even dairy. They lost six pounds over the course of about 20 weeks. They only lost six pimples. So again, while it's statistically significant, we have to ask if six pimples is really a clinically important outcome. And for somebody with moderate acne covering their cheeks, forehead, and nose, six pimples I don't think is going to be the end all be all. So the take home point here is don't have people give up dairy, but also major dietary changes are probably not going to be enough to have people get better with their acne. So uh, a lot of people come in already having diagnosed themselves, so this Dr. Google thing. Um, so a lot of people say, you know, I'm pretty sure I have acne, can you just give me something for it? Um, I don't know if that happens to you. Um, but I also just wanted to show a couple pictures just reinforcing that sometimes Dr. Google is not quite right. So this patient came in convinced that she had acne. What do you guys think? No, periorficial derm. So, I do see a lot more women than men with this. Does that fit with what you guys see? Yeah, I can't even think of the last guy I saw with periorificial dermatitis. A lot of these patients may have a history of using topical steroids, but there are some people who will have periorificial derm without steroid exposure. 
And it's important to remember it's not just around the mouth and nose, but sometimes around the eyes. So this is a case of one of those um, rare men with it. We treat it more like rosacea than acne. So those people who had diagnosed themselves, we need to sort of adjust their expectations about what their management is going to be. And as they get more severe, so down at the bottom of the slide here, you can see we are using more oral, so the doxycycline uh, and some of the topical calcineurin inhibitors. And I always try and set these people's expectations, because even though these look like tiny little bumps and they could just dissolve so quickly, usually, in my experience, this lasts for months. And so I just need to help them understand that it is going to take a little bit of time to get better. So this patient came in, and she was pretty sure that she had rosacea. And if I cover up the slide and just look at her chin, I could almost believe that. Um, but why doesn't she have it on her cheeks? Why does her nose look relatively spared? And so when we see an atypical distribution, we have to question the diagnosis. This was a woman who'd been using a steroid she got for another reason all around her mouth and gave herself rosacea. So steroid-induced rosacea, some people get steroid-induced acne. We just have to, again, think of it so that way we can ask about whether they might be using those steroids. And this uh, young man was brought in by his mom because she was worried that he was developing rosacea. And she was very worried that he was going to start to develop this glandular, thickened, overgrown skin. Um, so there's two points here. One is keratosis pilaris often causes a pinkness to the cheeks, especially of young people. And the second one is that rosacea is not a progressive spectrum. People with more mild rosacea, erythema, telangiectasias do not progress onto the phimomatous and very glandular type of rosacea. So we need to help our patients understand that. Of course, this gentleman didn't have to worry about that. So KP as a mimicker and using some moisturizers. So moving on to hydradenitis, and Dr. Teller, again, just really talked a lot about hydradenitis and particularly adalimumab. Um, and I think that the main take-home points for me in the last few minutes here are going to be recognizing HS, but between myself and Dr. Teller, I think you just saw a whole lot of pictures, so you're going to recognize it. Um, but the multimodality therapy for hydradenitis. Um, that adalimumab is one great therapy. Of course, it's at least available, but it is not the end-all, be-all of HS, at least not so far in my hands with my patients. So I still am really approaching these patients, combining many, many therapies together. So certainly we remember that we need to take in context, there was that question about how do you know if it's acne or whether it's more the stage one HS when you get these tiny little nodules? Part of it's going to be the distribution. So I saw a woman the other day who just had really sort of widened pores, but she had them in her inframammary fold, and she had them under both arms. That's not just normal pores. That's mild HS, and it's just not really inflamed right now. Getting a history from her that she's had these pink nodules before in these areas, even if she didn't see me. So those are the few clues that I look for. Certainly, if somebody walks in with stage 3 disease like this, we're thinking about adalimumab before anything else. The question for us with HS patients is sort of like with acne and isotretinoin. Let's start the drug before the scarring happens. We just don't know yet where it sort of fits in with the patients with the more mild disease, like bad stage 1 or stage 2. But it's also important for us as 
providers to remember that HS is really not just a skin disease. And Dr. Teller talked about some of the comorbidities happening. We know that spondyloarthropathy, cardiovascular disease. You know what patients really hate? Being depressed. They hate having pain all the time. They hate that nobody asks them whether they're sexually active or whether they feel good about themselves. These are very quick and easy questions to ask someone, and you don't have to be a psychologist to take care of their problem. We just need someone we can refer to, and that's life-changing. So if you can go back to your practice, remember that HS is like an iceberg and you see the surface of it, the HS part of it, but there are many other aspects to this disease where we need a PCP's help, where we need a psychologist's help, we might need a psychiatrist's help, we might need pain management's help. These are all the things that add a little extra effort but make an enormous difference to that patient. I think it's also important, I think this came up in Dr. Teller's talk, what's the youngest patient that I think the question was, did you ever put on adalimumab? I have a nine and a half year old. I swear to God, she's turning 17. So adolescence is happening earlier and earlier. There are nine year olds with HS. This is just something that's starting to happen. And we need to just be willing to sort of recognize that even children now can have HS. And there are recommendations about how to manage those children. But we also have patients who come in with delayed HS who didn't develop it until their 30s and 40s. And that just kind of speaks to how wacky HS can be. It's just very hard to pin down and can be very different for different people. And again, the importance here that depression happens in about half of our patients with HS. And you don't have to have bad HS to get depression. You could have stage one HS and just be in that time in your life where you're 20 and you want to go out and meet people and you want to feel good about your body. And HS keeps you from doing that. So I don't want you to tie severity to these comorbidities. It can happen. And anxiety is something that hasn't really been recognized with HS, but is being talked about more and more. It can happen in about 10 to 20%. And at least from talking to my patients who have anxiety, they say it comes from never knowing what's gonna happen that day. I could wake up and I have blood all over the sheets and I'm not gonna be able to work. They never know what's gonna happen. And that causes a lot of psychological, um, you know, just burden. So you guys got this, I'm gonna blow by it. You recognize that this is an atypical spot for HS. It looks like a single lesion. There's no uh, signs of scarring around that spot. So it fits better for a single local abscess than for HS where you see the scarring. You can sometimes see the tracks and it's in the right area. Again, this looks like relatively better and improved hydranitis, still stage two, but better. So how would we treat this patient who's got more mild disease? So if we say she looks maybe most like the nodules and abscesses in stage one, how would we treat her? Well, first line actually starts with topicals. So benzoyl peroxide, I like because it's cheaper for a lot of my patients than um, some of the uh, chlorhexidine, uh, Fizahex types of products. Um, Topical clindamycin is actually recommended at first line here than doxycycline, which is in second line, because there's a study that showed they are equivalent to each other. So again, if, with the idea that I can put the medicine just on the sites that need it and not with a pill treat all the bacteria in that person's body that might not need it, I try to start with topicals first. 
What I also want you to recognize about this scheme, which is based on the European guidelines that came out this year, is that we're always thinking about medical and surgical treatments together. So it's pretty uncommon that a patient is only ever gonna use a medicine applied to their skin or a pill. They're probably going to need intralational Kenalog at some point. You might be thinking about laser therapy. You might be thinking about a procedure called punch de-roofing. And another thing that you might not be familiar with, like punch de-roofing, could be the rifampin at the end here, so third line. Basically, for stage one, we're starting with topicals, we're going to single agent oral, and then we're going to combine oral agents together. So rifampin is a very old antibiotic. It's been out forever. And Dr. Teller was talking about topical uh, dapsone as being something that's anti-neutrophilic. Well, rifampin is anti-neutrophilic as well. So we use it sometimes for people who have folliculitis to Calvin's, dissecting scalp cellulitis and other things. The downside is rifampin turns people orange. Um, so I had a patient I was giving it to for a scalp condition. He said, doc, this works great, but now I sweat orange. And I had forgotten to tell him about that unfortunate uh, side effect. So it doesn't harm people, but it just means that their white t-shirts turn orange. Um, and it is important to realize that rifampin um, can help accelerate the metabolism of many other oral medications in the liver. So this is one of those times that you really do want to do a medication check to make sure that you're not going to cause any problems by adding this to the person's regimen. And punch de-roofing is a very quick procedure that we can do for a nodule or abscess. It is not an IND. INDs don't really work for some reason with hydradenitis, making a slit and then packing it. I have patients who come in where I, I suggest this punch de-roofing and they say, you're not gonna pack it, right? Because they've been through that 17 times before. Punch de-roofing, you take a four millimeter punch, I'll show you a picture in a second, you center it right over a nodule. It does not have to be fluctuant, it can just be a new hard nodule. You basically take the punch, you take the skin out that came with it, and then you take a small curette, and it doesn't feel like you're doing very much, you're kind of just scraping the inside of that hole, and if you punch through into the fat, that's okay, just scrape around. We don't really know why this works, but what we do know is it does. So a lot of times with surgery in HS, it seems like it can have a more remittive effect on a lesion. Um, and so after curetting down inside there, you just do something for hemostasis. And I did an experiment on a couple of my patients and I, I stopped after about three. I, they would come in with flares on both sides. I'd do Kenalog on one side, I'd do a punch de-roofing on the other. And the person would come back in a month or two later, they'd have the hypopigmentation where I did the Kenalog because she had darker skin and the nodule would be back, but on the other side it wasn't. So there's something perhaps about changing the immune response, which is not productive in that lesion, to a more productive wounding healing response that helps to just get rid of the hydradenitis in that area. So you can see two pink lesions in this axilla here. You would put your four millimeter punch right over the center, take that little plug of skin out. You basically just curette around inside that hole, hemostasis, and cover it with a Band-Aid it around in there. And this is how it heals up. So um, in the prior talk, I think that we need to think about surgical options as a real role. 
Um, I'll do wide local excisions, not for people with stage one, but for people with stage two, where they might have a really stubborn track or a series of nodules that just keep coming back over and over. Every patient I've done it to says, you know what, that surgical wound afterwards, it was pretty big, but it hurt less than the HS ever did. So I don't want you to think that surgery always causes this big, awful, horrendous, painful wound. Consistently patients say surgery causes less pain than that inflammation that's just seething under the surface with their HS. So I don't want you to be afraid that surgery is gonna add to it. It seems that it actually helps when it comes to their pain and inflammation. So moving on to people with more advanced disease, you can see now that we skip some of the topicals and move straight to orals. That doesn't mean you can't add topicals in with it. It just means topicals alone probably aren't gonna be enough. So you can see the doxycycline where we treat for 12 weeks. Again, it's sort of episodic. It's not continuously for years. It's give them 12 weeks and see where you are. Always thinking about those surgical options on the second line there. And then if people aren't responding, moving on to second, and then in third, adalimumab being an option there. And depending on what you're seeing in clinic, you can swap third line to second line or make other treatments. This is just, again, sort of a schema that uh, was recommended in the European group. Uh, the North American group is now working on a guideline for hydradenitis. So this is a patient with stage three disease, just complete involvement of the axillary vault with a sinus tracts. And for this patient, uh, we would definitely start with combination antibiotics, try and quiet that down, and probably move on to the adalimumab pretty quickly. If we were having trouble getting that quieted down or we got it quieted down partially, but it was still a problem, you could go in and just excise that area. So, Dr. Teller already talked about this. Um, this. The loading dose, again, is something we've seen. It's the Crohn's dosing. The maintenance is 40 milligrams weekly. I've had a couple of patients who got partially better uh, on one shot a week, and we usually go back to the insurance and ask if they will cover two shots, so 80 milligrams weekly. Uh, we've had a little success, and there is some data to show that for some patients, 80 milligrams can be more effective than 40. But I think it's also important to acknowledge what adalimumab can do and what it cannot do. It is not the panacea for HS. It's better than nothing. Um, and I think what's important to remember is that HS is that roller coaster from hell, so it's got good times and bad times. And so as part of the randomized controlled trials, we expect a pretty significant placebo response. So what we saw in terms of that 50% improvement 25 to 30% of patients had a 50% improvement on their own. So now it kind of makes that 50 or 60% rate of improvement that adalimumab caused or resulted in, we have to kind of just put it in perspective. That essentially half of that is what would have happened anyway. Adalimumab added another 20 to 30% of people who had a 50% improvement. And again, we have to remember we're saying a 50% improvement. So that might be worth it for now, but I think as we're seeing in psoriasis and the literature there, we want people clear. We want people to have no pain. We want them to do better, and I think we just need to push for that. So this is the patient with the most advanced disease that I showed you earlier. 
perianal disease, buttock disease, is some of the most stubborn hydranitis that's out there. So the question I asked you is, what is the next step you would do? I think the answers were a little bit all over the place when it came to oral antibiotics and extensive surgeries or local surgeries or adalimumab. And the answer really is yes, do all of those. Um, so this is somebody who you might consider referring to an HS specialist in your area. You would not be wrong to start them on an oral antibiotic. You would not be wrong to start them on the oral antibiotic and the adalimumab at the same time because this is very deep, very inflamed disease. So to wrap up, for HS, we're going to go backwards. It sounds like we can recognize it. What we need to do is think of it as not only the skin disease, but all those other comorbidities wrapped up into one, and to think about multimodality therapy with our medical treatments and our surgical treatments, particularly uh, the local surgeries and the punch D roofings. With acne, thankfully we don't have to delay the scar treatment after isotretinoin. We can do that earlier, within the first three to six months. With diet, it's not going to be enough, and importantly, I don't suggest to my patients that they change anything in their dairy diet unless they want to consider changing to a higher fat dairy. And when it comes to antibiotics, we need to think not only about how long people are on it, but the opportunity for maybe using some lower dose doxycycline, where it can be sub-antimicrobial and preserve the microbiome, uh, especially for that mom who came in asking. And don't forget that um, topical adapalene is now available over the counter, especially for those people who have trouble getting it. Thank you. I am not as forward as Dr. Rosen. I apologize. I'm not. <laughs> I can't be funny when um, asking about these ratings, but it does feel kind of weird to stand here and have you guys rate us. How useful will this session be in your practice? But I'm pretty sure Dr. Rosen won't invite me back if I don't do well. <laughs> as a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? All right, questions. What do we think about oral zinc for acne? So I don't use a lot of oral zinc. Um, I'm actually helping to write the HS guidelines right now, so I was most recently, recently just reading the literature um, for that. And the literature for HS and acne is still, it's, mildly effective, I would say. The study quality is not nearly as good as for some of the interventions, which just makes it challenging to say isn't going to work really well. Um, there are theoretical reasons about why zinc should help, because it helps to essentially regulate the immune response. Um, I would say, I work with Diane Thibitat, and she's a big acne guru. Uh, she'll turn to it if she has somebody you know, asking about it and who's very anti-antibiotic. So I think that there's definitely a role for it. We just have to remember it's not probably the most efficacious for either acne or HS. <clears throat> so practice typically uses 100 BID for oral acne. Is doxy 40 still comparable? Um, so the studies show that uh, 20 milligrams twice a day and the extended release 40 milligrams daily seems to have pretty similar results. 
And if somebody comes in after I've given them 20 milligrams twice a day or 40 once a day, and they didn't do well, I'm not gonna put them on 100 twice a day just to see for another three months if they're gonna respond. I've had the conversation with those patients like this is our go at antibiotics. Let's see what happens. If it doesn't work, we're gonna move on. Um, would you start with a low dose in moderate to severe? Yes, in moderate. In severe, I have a pretty low threshold to just put people on isotretinoin if I can get it. Uh, sometimes we have insurances that require people be on some other therapy. In that case, we put them on what's called the triple threat in our group. So it's an oral antibiotic, a topical retinoid, and benzoyl peroxide. We'll do it for three months, just knowing that we're going to have the patient come back and we're going to document that they need isotretinoin. Um, <clears throat> would you try a different oral antibiotic after they failed the first one? No. <laughs> I think that one go is pretty good for us. I think isotretinoin, I wish I had that for HS. I wish I had a drug that I could give people that after six or seven months changes fundamentally their disease. We like isotretinoin in our group. We use it. I wouldn't say we give it to people unnecessarily, like with more mild disease, but if we can't control them off antibiotics or they're not being controlled sufficiently on antibiotics, then we give it to them. And over the course of their you know, life, we probably are exposing them to fewer antibiotics. If a patient clears on the antibiotic for three months and then flares one month later but doesn't want isotretinoin, do you ever repeat? Yes, so um, I, I'm sure just like you have patients who have very strong ideas about how to be a doctor um, or PA, I have patients who come in and say, no, I don't want isotretinoin, and I just know there are gonna be some patients I need to lobby a little harder and kind of build a relationship with them before they'll trust me that they need isotretinoin. But I draw the line, you know, after that second course, I'd say, you know, after this, I'm. I really am not comfortable giving you a second course of antibiotic. And that's again where I set my patient's expectations very clearly up front about what I know from the medical literature and what my concerns are about just doing this, you know, you know, crutch, you know, where essentially we're just kind of hoping and hoping and hoping the antibiotic's gonna work. And from that study, we just know that there are a lot of people who end up on isotretinoin that just kept hoping, but they could have had a clearer face earlier. Um, how do you manage patients who flare when they're off oral antibiotics? Yeah, so similar question. Any data with cultures on yogurt affecting acne? Um, so I haven't seen any studies where they specifically studied yogurt as an intervention, but they did include all dairy products in that dairy study. So it was milk, cheese, yogurt, all those things. And they sort of grouped them together. They did not find that a single type of dairy, cheese, yogurt, or milk really um, made a difference. It was really about the milk fat that made a difference. Um, how long after stopping isotretinoin before doing laser? We do about three months. How do you differentiate pterosporum versus acne on the back? 
do you treat for both? So pterosperm folliculitis, at least for the few patients, I've only had a couple who had it, um, it's usually incredibly itchy and really uh, small little lesions rather than bigger, deeper papules and pustules. So for those patients, I'll usually do a little bit of like a fluconazole. Uh, benzoyl peroxide works for, um, it it's, kills yeast as well, so I can use it for both acne and the yeast aspect. Um, thoughts on azelaic acid? Uh, so azelaic acid, I like when people are pregnant, uh, but otherwise it's not the strongest treatment, at least in my experience. I've had a few people come in, you know, again, Dr. Google said I should be on azelaic acid. Okay, that's fine. Um, <laughs> give it a try. The downside for me is that it's usually pretty pricey. It's usually a tier three drug for a lot of my patients. So for that reason, um, I'm usually not suggesting it for them. Um, can you come on foods with a high glycemic index in acne? Um, so the study that I mentioned where the patients lost six pounds but only lost six acne pimples, that really was focused on this question of high glycemic index. They had patients change their diet so it was very protein rich and they really were limiting carbs versus other teens that did not make any difference in their acne. Um, and again, they really found that people successfully lost weight, but it didn't make a huge difference. I would say it did not make a clinically important difference in their acne but it's always good to be healthier. Um, other than avoiding steroids, what lifestyle modifications do you recommend for patients? Um, I don't really have any, but if anybody else has suggestions, I haven't heard a lot about you know, which hygiene products to use. In general, I try and dissuade people from using all kinds of scrubs. You know, people love the sugar scrub and the sand scrub, and I think that they like it a little too much because it feels like they can wash their acne away if they really scrub at it. But acne is deeper than that. You know, inflammation is deeper than that. So I usually just try and dissuade people from that. Um, Patient has recurrent cystic acne within a year of completion of isotretinoin. That's okay, they get a second try. Uh, HS and spironolactone, it can help some. I've had some people do great, I've had other people not do great. Another thing that you can add to an HS management can be metformin, um, pretty low risk. GI side effects are the main ones. Um, and so it's something, again, in this multimodality treatment and approach to HS that spironolactone and metformin are not going to be the end-all, be-all of HS management, but they can add to it so that way you're not necessarily having to make the leap to that next treatment. The incidence of younger HS cases seem to be related to childhood obesity. So it's really hard to tease apart because so many of our patients um, are heavier these days just with the epidemic of obesity. Um, and it's sort of like the idea that, you know, is autism really more common or are we just better at recognizing it? And that's, I think, the challenge with HS is that whenever we look in databases to try and study the incidence, we don't know if it's really becoming more common or that people are just better at putting a label on it. And so it makes it a little hard to study it. Do I recommend the avoidance of mint and cinnamon for recurrent perioreficial dermatitis? Um, occasionally, I do have patients who find that things that they're using in their mouth worsen uh, their perioreficial derm. So if they report that they've noticed anything that they're using, uh, an oral medicament or something like that, we will try and avoid it. Um, 
Will benzoyl peroxide wash suffice for assistance on an antibiotic resistance when used with an antibiotic? Um, yes, no, a wash, lotion, cream, gel, anything is wonderful. Um, I really like, there's a benzoyl 2.5% that I recommend to my patients over the counter that's pretty affordable, it's about $9. Um, any benzoyl peroxide wash we recommend to people, but we usually write down, go to the acne aisle, find an acne wash, turn the bottle around, here's the active ingredient, because I think 75% of the time they come back with a sal acid wash instead of a benzoyl peroxide wash. So we try and write down, active ingredient, look for this. Um, could low-dose doxy be applied for periorificial derm? Yes, good job making that leap. Um, I find that when I make a sys systemic Kenalog injection that patients flare more than intralesional, yes. So certainly with both, whether you're injecting into the muscle or sort of subcutis or into say an HS lesion, you're always gonna get some absorption into the body. Seems like there's a little bit less when it's you know, something that's topically applied or intralesional, but just keep in mind, pretty much every kind of steroid that we put on people or into their skin is to some extent being absorbed into their system. And I agree with you, IM certainly increases more. IV Remicade alongside adalimumab. Um, so typically we would not double dip when it comes to TNF inhibitors, it's a one or the other. So because adalimumab is just easier to get now that it's FDA approved, I think a lot of people start with that. Um, but if people aren't responding, there is some data to suggest that Remicade might be more potent. And so we'll make the leap after that to the infusion. Um, how do I code for punch de-roofing? Great question. I have to admit that my strength is not coding. Um, <laughs> I love to treat patients and let my staff decide how to code things. Um, but it's probably a, it's not really an I and D, but I could kind of see how it would fit for that. So I'd probably have to look at the descriptions versus destruction of benign lesions, but probably it fits best for an I and D. Um, Short contact BPO. Uh, so usually I have people use benzoyl peroxide just in the shower and wash it off. I'm not really sure otherwise what short contact BPO might be. Um, but I don't necessarily choose benzoyl peroxide wash versus a benzoyl peroxide lotion or gel leave-on. It's whatever seems like it's gonna work for that person's lifestyle and not bleach their clothing. Um, Yes, so there are some very heavy patients. This goes back to that Remicade suggestion. So Remicade is gonna be weight-based dosing. I think that it makes a lot of sense where if adalimumab isn't working because their BMI is you know, 35 or higher, try and get the Remicade. How many punch de-roofings will I do? As many as the person needs and wants. Once they get experience with them and they know how they heal, they often can help you decide how many they need. Could be three, it could be four in a single area. Um, for a lot of people, it's, there might be one or two really painful areas that they just know they need relief from. So we focus on those. I don't close the wound after doing a punch. We leave it open to granulate. That is pretty much the best approach for any HS surgery is to let it granulate. When we sew things together, the HS seems to recur a, a lot more quickly. So with the punch de-roofing, it granulates. When I do a broader excision under the axilla and the groin, it's a 12-week uh, healing process, but it means that 
they still get a very nice wound, number one. The scar contracts and it looks wonderful. Even a big wound like this contracts down to a really skinny little linear scar. It just takes 12 weeks to do that. Um, I have plastic surgeons that are trying to cut out abscesses when they are in fact HS. Yes. Um, how do I recommend, how to recommend this? Uh, so talking to the plastic surgeons, I think that we need to try and help the surgeons know that treatment for HS is multimodality. So having them maybe send you those HS patients so that way you can figure out what medical therapies might be appropriate to kind of start with. How much of their HS can you get to settle down? And then talk to them about treatment for HS is not an IND those lesions will come back. We are not helping patients by doing INDs. But if there are stubborn spots that the same area keeps lighting up, flaring up over and over and over, that's when doing a pretty healthy, just local excision can be very helpful. We don't always have to do that, you know, underarm ectomy, like Dr. Teller said. It doesn't have to be huge or nothing. There are in-between options like the punch deroofing and just a smaller excision. You guys have really good questions. Uh, we did all those. Yes, any data on Stellara for HS? There are anecdotal sort of case series and case reports. Um, lots of people will go to it if adalimumab and Remicade are not working. Sort of Stellara is that uh, third option there. Uh, we do focus on lifestyle changes with HS patients. Um, what I can tell you is if they have seen a dermatologist before, if they've had HS for more than a couple years, what they don't want is for you to walk into the room and say, yeah, I also need you to stop smoking and lose weight and then here are these other things. They are in pain and they are miserable and <laughs> I've had patients tell me like, I just wanna punch you in the face, not me personally, but like doctor or providers, I wanna punch you in the face if you tell me that I need to lose weight and stop smoking because this stinks and I need to do something to feel good and if that's smoking a cigarette or having chocolate, I'm gonna do it. So it's a conversation that I have with them about, here's what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna try and treat your disease and have you have less pain. Now when it comes to weight reduction in HS, the data is actually pretty crappy. There is not great data out there to say that if people lose weight, their HS gets better. Doesn't exist. It makes sense for other reasons. We want people to be healthy, have a lower risk of having a heart attack or stroke because their weight's lower. We know their self-confidence is probably gonna be better. Uh, they're not gonna have pain in their joints, but we cannot tell them that their HS is definitely gonna be better. And so I, want, I talk to them very honestly about how I would like to take care of them as a whole person, but I can't have them go out jogging if they have really painful lesions on the insides of their thighs. So we need to work together. All right. I've never had an insurance company not cover punch deroofing. If a patient has severe acne and HS, do you treat isotretinoin first and then Humira? Um, it probably depends on the patient. I would talk to them about, do both problems bother you equally at this point? Do you want to start both drugs at the same time? Um, there is some data, they're looking at biologics uh, for acne, um, a couple of different ones. Uh, so it, theoretically, you could put people on in, you know, a biologic and maybe see improvement in their HS in their acne, in their you know, folliculitis on their scalp and all kinds of different things. 
Um, almond milk was not studied because it's not technically dairy. Um, so certainly you could make a substitution if you wanted to, but again, the whole dairy diet thing is that we don't necessarily have to avoid dairy intake. Um, can I provide the literature for the new recommendations on starting scar treatments? Um, yeah, so all my references were on the slides for, maybe, I'll check. If they aren't, just come up and find me. I'm gonna be here for four days. Um, but I tried to put all the references at the bottom of my slides. Um, can you use antibiotics along with Humira? Absolutely. Uh, allergic to tetracyclines, what's my first line oral antibiotic? Uh, in that case, I would consider a macrolide and make sure that they're using benzoyl peroxide. Uh, we talked about that. Do I send off the specimen? No, because I know what it is. If I do cut out a big fistulous tract, I will send that because of the potential concern that long-term inflammation can cause SCCs. So that's really what the pathologist is looking for. Um, so with the benzoyl peroxide, how does benzoyl peroxide work? So benzoyl peroxide is not an antibiotic in the sense that it messes with some of the proteins that allow the bacteria to work. So like a lot of antibiotics um, interrupt DNA synthesis or RNA transcription, benzoyl peroxide just blasts holes in the bacterial membrane and it can't live. So that's why bacteria cannot become resistant to a peroxide. Um, and that's why it helps to complement other antibiotics. Those bacteria that may have developed resistance to the doxy or um, the clarithromycin, there's no way that they're gonna get through benzoyl peroxide uh, topically. And Accutane for HS, not my preferred treatment. People get better whether on it, but not Usually, not everybody, and it will come back right after they stop. So it's not a sustainable long-term therapy, so I don't use it very often. Really great questions. Thank you very much. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.